LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Andy Duncan. And together we will endeavour to cut the financial crap. Austerity, bailouts, base rates, deficit, default, derivatives, inflation, deflation, stagflation, negative equity, negative growth, quantitative easing, stimulus. Just what on earth does it all actually mean? Does today's financial and economic news leave you bored, bamboozled, apathetic or even angry? Can't bear to hear any more bull about bulls and bears? Anonymous think tanks, faceless foundations and previously unheard of institutes. Where do they all come from? Why do we need them? And more importantly, who pays for them? In an age when we're told that we can't afford enough nurses and teachers, just how can we afford so many economists? And what of the myth and mystery of money is nothing more than the black magic of a modern day Wizard of Oz? What if everything you thought you knew about money was a lie? Hello and welcome, Andy, and thank you very much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure to be here. Now, Andy, today we're going to endeavour to cut the financial crap. That is to say, to bypass um, a lot of what the mainstream media present with regards to finance and economics, Mm -hmm. uh, which is generally, in my experience, characterised by inaccuracy, uh, a lot of misrepresentation, and indeed a lot of ignorance as well. And the way this information is put across to the public um, accounts for widespread ignorance um, when it comes to economic matters, and also um, a lot of apathy. I think people sense that a lot of what's been presented to them in regards to the, their own personal economy and the wider con- economy nationally and the global economy, they sense that it's important somehow, but it's just not made easy for them to get to grips with it. And indeed, there are a lot of institutions and organizations, banks and government agencies uh, among them, um, who find this quite desirable, actually, public ignorance. And if that apathy was to continue, that that serves their their ends rather well. Well, it's a long, complicated story. You've raised lots of different areas there. I think the main one is the mainstream media is very tied into the government by, by necessity, because... If you work for the mainstream media, first of all, you're licensed by the government, and and if you displease them, then you you will have your license removed. But also, as well, most of your sources are information from the government. So if you're a financial correspondent, you'll go to the Bank of England press briefings, you'll go to the Treasury press press briefings, uh, and so on. And virtually all of your news is just being handed to you by government press officers, and the government spend an inordinate amount of time and money uh, on press officers and making sure that those releases are really good for newspapers. So the MSM is, is, is tied kind of um, symbiotically to the government. So they have to say what the government believes. And I, I think most of us 
um, many people in this country as well, because of because of going to schools where we've had pumped into our minds over many, many years that all is good is government. Uh, we kind of want to believe the government is good. We kind of want to believe everything is okay. We want to muddle through. We want to get through. So I think people, if they want real news now, do have to turn to alternative media because the government's not going to broadcast anything bad about itself. And the mainstream media is frightened or incapable of broadcasting anything bad about the government. Yes, and we do hear a lot of people um, <clears throat> saying, being frustrated with me, it's the MSM, as you call it, mainstream media presentation of well, all sorts of uh, events and affairs, not just finance and economics. And they say, oh, we should hold these people to account and we should force them to have higher standards. But I think actually we should just forget about it, just leave them to it, because they are increasingly irrelevant. And it's only when you watch or listen to or read mainstream media that you get them telling you repeatedly how they are still you know, the guardians and the gatekeepers and how important they are. But actually, that's not a true reflection of the situation out there, really. Well, I think Gary North summed this up best. They, they used to be the gatekeepers. They used to be a citadel. A citadel was a country or a society. And they used to guard the gates. Uh, the problem is now for them is that the walls are down. The, uh, the internet has enabled the walls to come down. So they're still guarding these gates of information and filtering information and doing things like they did the other day where there's stories about gold disappearing. So conveniently, the Queen is then seen walking around the vaults in the Bank of England, completely stage-managed. BBC fell for it. Everyone falls for it, all this stage management of presenting a good picture. I mean, they never said who owned the gold that the Queen was looking at. I mean, that gold was probably owned by someone else. But the kind of suggestion, the implicit suggestion, is that the gold is somehow British. And there wasn't actually that much. There was a few hundred tonnes in that room that she was in. Um, so if it was the British government's gold, it was all of the British government's gold in that particular room. So we, the, the walls are down. I mean, I very rarely watch mainstream media these days. And it's great that newspapers figures are, are, are falling. You know, sales of the um, kind of mainstream newspapers are collapsing. And hopefully soon then most of them will be out of business. People are watching less and less of, uh, say, the BBC News. <coughs> The big hoo-ha recently about Newsnight and its various things was a storm in a teacup for the chattering classes of London because I didn't watch any of that and I don't particularly care. And hopefully a lot of people also don't care and they, they use the internet to find the information that they're after. Yeah, that stunt that you're referring to with the Queen really did take the biscuit. It was a case of, as you say, uh, for those of us who are you know, uh, taking more of an interest in uh, deep financial and economic stories and we've been hearing a lot in recent times about uh, various countries and central banks gold uh, holdings uh, are they really there etc etc there's been there's a lot of information you can earn on earth if you go digging but that finally starts to bubble to the top of the mainstream and then literally it's like show them a picture of some gold now hang on we did that before show them a picture of some gold with someone they trust with the queen <laughs> yeah her madge we just wheel her out and you know god bless the queen there the gold's there nothing to see here Go about your business. <laughs> I thought it was interesting listening. I mean, I did actually watch that piece. It was interesting listening to the implicit messages they were trying to push there. Uh, there are another eight or nine rooms like this. Are there? Well, why didn't you show them to us then? Why did you just show us one room? So it really is kind of all smoke and mirrors. And no ownership, no audit of the gold. Just, uh, just here it is. Here it is physically. It belongs to someone and the Queen's holding it. So it probably belongs to her and she's the British government. But nothing outstated as factual. Um, quite interesting. Yeah, from, a, from a, a lawyer's perspective, you could see there how um, if that was then, it couldn't be used as evidence basically later. You know, we didn't actually say this. It's about inferring things and then the viewer or listener filling in the blanks in their head 
but that's them doing that. That doesn't mean that's the, the truth as such. Yeah, I think another interesting thing with the financial debate is um, we've got an extreme right-wing party, the Conservative Party, wants to spend, I'll just make up some numbers, they want to spend £698.5 billion this year. Uh, An extreme left-wing government, the Labour Party, wants to spend £697 billion this year. So the the managed differences between the the entire spectrum of political thought is £1.5 billion from 697 to 698.5. So you've got God and the angels at one end and you've got the devil and hell at the other end. Um, and, and, the, and the press goes along with this because they like a conflict. It sells, it sells their services. You know, they like seeing people fighting in a ring, a red corner and a blue corner. But isn't it, isn't it pathetic? One and a half billion pounds is the difference between both the extremes. And yet there's still both sides. One side wants to borrow 150 billion pounds and the other side wants to borrow 148.5 billion pounds while still taking in about 500 billion pounds a year in tax. Now, what they should be doing, of course, is completely slashing government in two. They should give, uh, they should completely get, stop all borrowing completely and they should even start cutting taxes for real. So they should be cutting government spending by 200, 250, 300 billion pounds a year. That's going to be the only way to get out of this kind of financial crisis safely, but they won't do it. What they'll continue to do is borrow and borrow, and then they'll borrow, buy their own. They'll buy their own borrowing through the Bank of England, printing money to buy the Treasury's bonds, and then we'll enter a period of rising and rising inflation. Then they'll face a choice, and I suspect that when they're faced with that choice, they'll just keep printing rather than letting the collapse happen. We'll come to um, some of those points in more detail um, shortly, but in terms of uh, shrinking the government down uh, to size and the fact that really when you look at their policies and crunch some of the numbers that you really can't put a cigarette paper between them. Uh, I would refer listeners to uh, the last interview on LegalizeFreedom.com. That was with Douglas Carswell, MP, and we go into all of that in a, in a lot of detail. Um, but uh, we'll confine ourselves somewhat more to the economic and financial realms. And at the core of all this, the one thing that most people still cannot grasp um, about is basically the fundamental nature of money in our system, where it comes from, uh, the nature of it. And it's basically the central fact that it's created as debt. And a lot of people will hear that and go, oh, yes, I, I heard that somewhere, read that somewhere. But they don't actually fundamentally understand what that means. It means that the money, people think of money, oh, well, that's the coins and paper in our pockets. But I think in, in Britain anyway, that's around about 3% and probably similar in other comparable economies 3% of the quote unquote money is coins and notes and that's the only money that the government makes that's the only money there is all the rest of it comes from private banks and is lent into existence that means it's not even just created out of thin air and then circulated it's circulated with and then needs to be paid back with interest but of course it doesn't take a great leap of intellect to work out well say you create a hundred pounds for the sake of just a number and you then say, okay, well, they put it into circulation and we require £110 back. Like, okay, well, where's the £10 going to come from? Well, maybe you could get it from the same bank, but then that would have interest attached to it as well. So there's this fundamental, uh, how can I put it, misunderstanding or lack of understanding about the, the nature of money itself. I think it's the greatest confidence trick of all time, isn't it? It's lasted now about 500 years or so, maybe a bit longer. Um, we start off with private money thousands of years ago being little nuggets of gold and then little nuggets of silver. 
um, and then weighed and then stamped as a kind of badge of authenticity. This this little nugget of gold weighs, uh, you know, one owl, Athenian owl's worth of gold in here, kind of proved by the the stamp of the um, the the owl. And people would weigh the money anyway. And eventually we get through to the kind of medieval times where the gold you used to store your gold with the goldsmiths because they had the biggest vaults. And strangely enough, they were all centred and clustered around exactly where the Bank of England is now. Uh, and then the goldsmiths noticed that what they could do is instead of giving gold in and out, what you could do is give paper receipts in and out. And there was at that time a one-to-one -one correspondence. So one piece of paper going out represented one gold coin. And that piece of paper would then float around the markets of uh, wherever it was. Let's imagine it was London. And people wouldn't bother going to get the gold. It was too much hard work. They'd just leave it in the goldsmiths. And uh, the bits of paper would float around the economy, each one representing one gold coin. And then the goldsmiths noticed that no one ever turned up to get the gold. And on a typical year, they might only pass out about 5 or 10% of the gold. So they thought, well, why don't we just print some extra receipts? No one's going to notice. It will go into the marketplace. I'll buy some stuff. And when I buy some stuff, um, that will never come back to me and I'll be long dead and gone before that ever becomes uncovered. And we, we eventually end up with a fractional reserve system of 10%. So there's only 10% of the gold representing 100% of the money. Um, far too many tickets uh, representing far too little gold. But then the governments gave banks protection for this because – who were the goldsmiths lending money to? They were lending money to people like Charles I and Charles II to fight wars with. So these different governments gave these banks, uh, the goldsmiths became banks, they gave these different banks some legal permissions to do this with people's money. So hence we end up with the modern world and eventually even the gold backing went. So now it's, there's no, even no gold behind anything, it's just paper. So you go to the Bank of England now, present a £10 note, they'll give you two £5 notes, you give them... A £50 note, they'll give you five £10 notes. So it, it's it's all completely meaningless. Um, the Treasury the, um, will issue a bond. A private bank will buy the bond. That bond will then be used as an asset. And on that asset, they can then, then lend out 10 times that amount of money electronically. That money then floods into the economy. And we have more and more paper money chasing less and less goods. And if this seems um, just too simple... Uh, really a system to be believable. One of the quotes I like about this is from Henry Ford, um, the motor guy, yes, he, he himself. And uh, he said once, it is well enough that people of the nation, referring to the US, uh, do not understand our banking and money system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And that's really what's at stake, is that it seems to be too simple. It can't, in fact, be that simple, but it is. And that almost in itself seems like a block to people understanding it. It's almost like that they're paralysed by um, a system that, as you say, now the money's backed by nothing. It's from thin air. We have a, a huge balloon sort of economy globally now with uh, the, the most profitable thing to do is to make, you know, to make money from money. And it's created this huge shadow system that uh, really is you know, built on sand. Yeah, I, th I think most people don't have to understand it, but what most people do is they get on with their normal day, day lives. You know, they, they're carpenters or they're plumbers or they're, you know, doing other useful things. They just need to trust that someone understands it. And who do they trust? They trust the monetary intellectuals. The problem with trusting the monetary intellectuals is that the, they make a huge amount of money themselves personally by being fully in with the system. So if I get a degree in economics... And I'm one of the people who's trusted by society to tell everyone that everything's good. 
Where am I going to go get a, get a job? I'll get a job with either central government or a large bank as a large bank's economist or a government economist. And then I'm going to get a salary. I'll just make up a number, £100,000 a year, plus you know, benefits and pensions and so on. So I'm very fully involved with believing in the system because it's generating me a very nice income. This was one of the things Murray Rothbard used to say. Under a free market system with proper money, um, we wouldn't need very many economists. The reason we need thousands and thousands of economists now is to, is to kind of maintain this kind of green curtain around the myth of money. So the economists, the intellectuals, have basically been bought off with this uh, with this system, and they've deluded themselves as well because uh, with government control of education. Um, who does the government back? Do they back a university, which does an Austrian school of economics um, department, or do they back um, a university which has a Keynesian or a monetarist uh, school of economics? They'll back the Keynesian one, and they'll put, pump lots of money into that university because Keynesianism basically says government needs to control money. So <laughs> preaching to the choir there. So this is one of the dangers of letting um, governments take over education, as they did in this country uh, in the UK, just before, during, and after the First World War, and the universities basically sold themselves to the to the government for funding. Uh, from that point on, governments have funded these kind of Keynesian schools. These Keynesian schools produce people who believe in Keynesianism. They then flood into the economy, get very nice, easy jobs with government and big banks, uh, being paid very well. And then they tell everyone else that everything is fine and dandy and that this is the way it must be. This is the only way it must be. And we must trust the government. Well, with regards to um, com the complexity or other ways of the system, um, I studied economics for a while uh, until I realized that it was, uh, you know, like beating my head against a wall trying to, to, to get beyond the, what was in the textbooks. And one of the people I read was an economist called uh, J.K. Galbraith. And here's an interesting quote, which I remember from the time, and it was uh, is this. The study of money, above all other fields in economics, is one in which complexity is used to disguise truth or to evade truth, not to reveal it. The process by which banks create money is so simple, the mind is repelled. And this puts in mind actually a lot of the what we have to wade through and deal with on your average mainstream media financial presentation is jargon and acronyms and all this other guff coming from a lot of the people that you were just referring to, these uh, bought-off so-called economic experts. And this makes it very difficult for people to get a grasp, once again, on what is essentially quite a simple subject. And it, where these people come from, I'm never quite sure. I mean, they, on the news, they were referred to think tanks, um, institutes, uh, foundations. I mean, just... You know, alphabet soup of these uh, organisations. I, I sometimes wonder who funds them. How do people get jobs there? You know, they're, they're never heard of until they're wheeled out to back something up. Well, they're all part of the system, aren't they? And they, they print the money to pay them. But I think if anyone's listening to this and they want to understand money, that there's a, a nice, uh, easy route to it. Uh, you might not be understanding what we're saying because we're not explaining things very well. We may not even understand things very well. So if people really want to understand things, they just have to get hold of the works of Murray Rothbard. Now, the book they should start with is What Has the Government Done to Our Money? It's a very, very slim book, which explains that the kind of story of how money went from gold nuggets all the way through to quantitative easing in just a few pages, you know, 50 to 100 pages. A very nice and simple, beautiful book, freely available on the Internet. Download it to your Kindle or your iBook or your Nook or whatever you've got. And just read it. Fantastic. Or just read it on a web page. Once you've read that one, 
possibly re- then read The Mystery of Banking. And again, Murray Rothbard is such a genius because he cuts through. He just cuts through. The, it's a bit like, uh, I think, like Frodo with um, in the... Uh, in the kind of misty mountain, uh, not in the misty mountains, Frodo trying to get through the Shelob's lair with the sword. Murray Rothbard is the sword, and he can cut through all those webs, and he can um, make you understand what's going on. So read What Has the Government Done to Our Money, then read The Mystery of Banking, and that's probably enough. But if you really want to go further, then the next two books would be uh, Man, Economy, and State by Murray Rothbard. And then for a more modern, deeper look at things, we probably want to go to... Um, uh, money bank, uh, money economic cycles uh, by uh, Jesus Soto de Soto. Another um, device that's used to sort of pull the wool over our eyes um, are statistics presented to us, uh, mostly by the government. And there's almost none of these that stand up to serious scrutiny. That is to say that they, you know, back up what they were being told that they back up in terms of like what's true, what's not true, what's really happening in the economy. And, uh, one of these, for example, that's constantly talked about, particularly at the minute, is GDP, or gross domestic product. And that's a good example of what I'm talking about, because it's held up as a measure of whether the, uh, the economy and, by extension, the country is doing well or not. But it's a very, very crude measure. And GDP essentially measures economic activity. So, for example, uh, and that doesn't mean that all economic activity is good. An example of perhaps economic activity that is not good would be say for example there was a flu epidemic uh, this winter and it resulted in uh, many many vulnerable uh, young and old people getting ill needing vaccinations hospitalization Uh, that would all involve economic activity but it's difficult to say oh well we want more of that Um, so perhaps you could just speak to how gdp is, is a crude and quite often virtually useless measure well, it's just a tracking of spending, really. It's a, it's a tracking of the individual spending of individual units. Now, how stupid it is, is in China, we have the Chinese government who are spending money on ridiculous cities in the middle of nowhere, ghost cities, and all of the money spent on concrete there and on construction of towers that no one's ever going to live in, um, all goes down to looking good for GDP. Now, the actual buildings and the cities themselves with nobody in them, shopping malls with one shop in them, with hundreds and hundreds of outlet but, um uh, uh, sites um, all goes down as extra GDP and uh, so it, it, it's just a tracking of spending so if governments borrow money and, and then print the money into existence to buy their own borrowing and then spend it on things like uh, you know um, Crossrail in, in London and various other uh, government projects to employ builders um, that will all show down show up as increased GDP but it's not and this is how silly it is we could both be standing on a flat piece of earth um, you dig out a hole in the ground, I'll give you £5 to dig that hole out in the ground for me, and then I fill the hole back in with the earth that you've just dug out of the ground and you give me the £5 back for, for the work I've just done. That would be shown as a GDP increase of £10, a £5 transaction from you to me and a £5 transaction from me to you. But what's actually happened? Nothing. The ground is the same as it was beforehand. That's how nonsensical GDP is. It not, it's not really much more complicated than that. And it all comes from Keynesianism and monetarism, which is a derivative of Keynesianism. And again, all these economists uh, who, who are monetarists and Keynesians all go mad about GDP. And actually, recently, we've heard that the Bank of England, the new um, ex-Goldman Sachs person who's coming in to run the, the Bank of England, he is talking about nominal GDP tracking. What that is, is that's a cover for saying he's going to print money. So what they're going to do is they're going to forget about this 2% inflation target, 
which is a joke, isn't it? Because they haven't hit it for the last three or four years. And I always think that's very strange as well, this inflation target. What the government are saying is with a 2% inflation target is we're um, – we're going to come in your house and we're going to steal things from you, but we're not going to steal everything from you in one go. We're going to steal 2% of your stuff each year. So we'll just come into your house and we'll steal one radio each year, 2% of your stuff. That's what a 2% inflation target is. And the other thing about that is um, what should be happening is prices should be going down. For the whole of the Victorian era, the whole of the kind of industrial revolution, prices went down. As technology improved and steam engines improved and telegraphs improved and railways improved, prices came down as society became more efficient. So one gold coin in 1800 would buy, you know, 10 units of something. And by, you know, 100 years later, it would buy many, many more units. So it might buy 20 or 30 units of the same thing because of the massive increase of technology. We see that only in the modern age with computers. With computers, uh, Prices, let's say, started at £1,000 for a PC, and a couple of years later, it's £500 for a PC, and the PC is twice as powerful. And then five years later, the PC is £250 and twice as powerful again and smaller and, and a laptop and everything else. So we only really see this with computing, this what should be happening to everything. So not only is the government with a 2% inflation target stealing 2% of everything you have, if really prices should be coming down by 5% each year generally, they're actually stealing 7% of your wealth each year with a 2% inflation target. Um, so to just and they can't even hit that, can they? They can't even hit a two percent inflation price inflation target. So now they're going to move to nominal GDP tracking. And again, these the men behind the men and the women behind the green curtain in the Emerald City are getting scared. So now they're giving up even the inflation targets they can't hit, and they're going to um, basically print money so governments can spend, so they can boost this uh, this nominal GDP spending figure. Well, people shouldn't be surprised to discover, really, that um, all sorts of government stats, but particularly uh, with regards to things like inflation, um, is pretty much the same situation as when they present unemployment figures, that it's not all it seems to be. Uh, but we've been brainwashed uh, into thinking that inflation... I mean, first of all, we, we've been brainwashed so we don't even ask the basic question, well, why would the price of things go up? I mean, unless there's more demand for them and the supply is getting a bit tighter then you'd expect to see prices. Why are we conditioned to think that prices going up is normal? You know, we joke and say, ho, 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 I remember buying a pint of beer for, for 10p in the 60s or whatever, you know. Uh, but And we accept the fact that it's going to be more next year than it is this year, probably. Why is that? And we go into shops and say, oh, you know, I remember that uh, that tin of beans was, uh, was, was 5p less last year. And, oh, well, that's inflation, as if the price of beans going up is causing inflation. You know, now it's presented that way in the mainstream media because they get our basket of, um, you know, groceries and say, oh, well, it costs this much more and the greedy manufacturers or greedy food producers or greedy whoever it is. But when, in fact, the price increase in a tin of beans is uh, an effect of inflation. You know, it's a symptom of it. It's not a cause of it. Yeah, there's more paper chasing the same number of tins of beans. So if you've got a hundred pounds and a hundred tins of beans, each tin of beans will cost, uh, you know, one pound. If if you then print ten more pounds, so there's now there's a hundred and ten pounds. Um, each tin of beans will now cost, cost one pound ten. It's it's not. A, I mean, the 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 green grocers and the shops are trying to bring prices down to get your custom. And again, this is uh, one of the things happened throughout the entire nineteenth century. Prices continually came down very gradually very slowly and we do still see this effect in the um, in the computing industry just about and everything else is being masked by um, 
that's being masked by government taxes and regulations and inflation. But that's what was common for everything in the 19th century, up until about, say, the First World War. And I, th- I think this is one of the reasons we're fooled. Um, whenever, whenever governments need to really change our minds, what they need to do is instigate a war, because during the war they can massively increase their powers. Now, after the war, their powers go back, but they never go back down to what they were before the war. So they instigate the First World War, again, another thing shrouded completely in mystery, and do all sorts of things during that war. After that war, they, they recede a little bit, but not as far back as they went um, before the war. And then they instigate the Second World War, and then the Second World War again. They take on massive powers, and then after the war, they release some of them, but again, they've grown much, much larger. So that's the reason we've been fooled, because we thought it was normal in the Victorian era for prices to continuously go down, um, two major wars like that of, of where the government could take over society. So, I mean, look look what they did in 1945. Labour government, it doesn't matter which party it is, the British government took over schooling, they took over uh, healthcare, they took over industry. Um, gradually they released that a little bit over the next 30 years as their inefficiencies became too much, such as in the car industry. But with this massive control, they got us used to the idea of constant price inflation. <clears throat> And the other thing we can do is what you can do if you want to see the real price of something is measure it in terms of weight of gold. And there we can see that something like oil, uh, which, you know, we can see at the pumps in this country now, was it about 133 pence a litre? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's nearly a revolution here six or seven years ago when it, was, when it nearly went to a pound. And now it's much higher than that. And people are just kind of must and grumble, must just keep going along. Um, because we're just conditioned to prices continuously going up and wages not going up as fast. Um, we, we are coming to the end game, I think. I think, I think it's uh, what they might need to do, and this is what I'm terribly afraid of, is they might need to instigate another war to get us to, to kind of um, be quiet again and to get back into our cages and, and toe the line. So that's my great fear over the next sort of 10 years, is that uh, the, as everything collapses and these people lose control, then they'll instigate a war somewhere over something, who knows, something spurious, such as someone being shot in Serbia, and uh, and, and then get us back into our cages that way. So that's how they do it. And, and if you really want to see the price of something, how, how it really should be, just look at it in terms of the weight of gold. If with, People feel, I think, that, as you quite rightly point out, that we're kind of on the edge of a precipice at the minute, and they might not quite be able to put their finger on why, but why there might be a quote-unquote collapse is basically to do with the state of uh, global, the global economy and finances because we have this situation, money out of nothing situation, as I referred to earlier, then the temptation just to keep producing that, given that most of it, it doesn't involve any printing these days, it's figures on the screen. The temptation to keep doing that and blowing up bubbles in assets and other things has been just too much. And also, because government spends more than it takes in tax and, and has done pretty much forever... Uh, it's this artificial money creation is then used to finance government, the size of government, basically. But, of course, all this, as I referred to earlier, then at interest as well. So we're in danger of a collapse now because we have this huge um, shadow financial system, unpayable debts, mathematically impossible to service, but demands are being made that this is done. And also it's leaching over into the real world where in order to try and do something that is absolutely impossible... We can see it, you know, in Greece and in Ireland and in Italy. And it's starting here as well. We've seen the US has got its own version of it. It's starting to impact on people's actual lives, this attempt to do the impossible. 
Well, what they're trying to do is keep the banks bailed out, in uh, especially the French and the German banks, um, because you know, 15 years ago or so, various things were done for Greece in order to when the euro was introduced. Um, the Greek government could basically borrow at the same rate as the German government could. Um, once that happened, they then borrowed like crazy people to do whatever they wanted to do. Um, and where did they get the money from? Well, they sold Greek government bonds to French and German banks. And so these French and German banks are now sitting on, I don't know, hundreds of billions or maybe even trillions of euros of Greek government uh, debt. Um, and they're the ones who are being bailed out, not the Greek people. The Greek people are having a terrible time. It's the banks that lent the money to the Greek governments. Now, these banks should suffer the fate of the free market, the kind of Joseph Schumpeter, you know, creative destructionism. But they're not being allowed to because... If the French banks went down, the French government will go down. If the German banks go down, the German government goes down. And so these German governments and uh, French governments aren't bailing out the Greek government. They're bailing out themselves. Um, I, I don't know how it's going to collapse. Uh, it, it's like um, if, if, if anyone saw the last Harry Potter film, there's this dome that's over over the school, Hogwarts school, and all the Death Eaters are casting spells at this dome. Where it's going to crack, who knows? I mean, but it will, there will come a point, the weakest kind of molecular part, molecular structure of the dome of the financial system, wherever that is, and who knows where it is, that will be the first to crack. And once that cracks, I think the whole thing will go down. Um, emergency measures will be put in place by various governments. There'll be, there'll be, uh, there'll be price rise controls and price controls and all sorts of things, which will make things even worse, make the 1970s look like a, look like a holiday. Um, and that, would, how will they get out of this? violence is usually the way they get out of these things so and a war will possibly be instigated somewhere now what we must do is we must just laugh at this and just sit back and just say we're not mentally taking part in this we do not believe in this and that's another problem i'm seeing in society now the increasing militarism um you see in america now in even the small school game you get you get uh, you get soldiers there raising a flag even i noticed on the sports personality of the year the other night i mean that's about sport isn't it and yet the whole thing was filled with pictures of soldiers and there were soldiers marching on the the uh, the trophy. What's, what's that got to do with anything? Why is there this increasing militarism, this increasing kind of um, uh, portraying the military as a wonderful thing? I, I'm very, very nervous about the next few years. Well, we, we saw the uh, militarization of the Olympics, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, in, in the UK here in London and uh, ostensibly for protection. But, you know, my initial... Uh, feelings about that were well basically if that's the extent of security that we now need to have some games then you know that we've got problem we really need to address this but also at the back of my mind was yeah this is being beamed into our heads isn't it this idea that you know soldiers good military good protection safety you know be patriotic you know don't question things and uh, that's the subtext, really. Yeah, get back into your cage, let us lock the door and be happy. But I was amazed, Sports Personality of the Year Award, why are there eight members of the armed forces marching on the trophy? It, I, I was very worried by that. that. That, to me, was the first real kind of public demonstration of uh, this increasing militarism in the UK. Well, one of the ironies in all this is, of course, that uh, not only big government, uh, you know, in a sort of... Um, overextended state is made possible by you know the way the money is created from nothing uh war just wouldn't be affordable if it wasn't for this sort of a uh, ghost 
uh, financing. Well, that was the thing about the uh, the 1971 coming off the gold standard. That was because of the Vietnam War, because I think it was Lyndon Johnson had a policy of guns and butter. Now, if you're going to have a policy of guns and butter, that's fine. Well, it's not fine, but let's imagine it's fine. If the people are prepared to pay for it. So the American people say to the American people, we want to have guns in the war in Vietnam. We want to have butter. We want to have a welfare state in the United States. The American people say, yes, that's fine. That's great. Let's put our hands in our pockets and pay for both of these things. That would have been one thing. But they didn't do that. The people in the United States weren't prepared to put their hands in their pockets and pay for both a huge welfare state and a huge warfare state. So what had to happen was they had to start printing money. And the only way they could stop that money devaluing was by through the London Gold Pool, which closed in 1968, was to drain 25,000 tonnes of gold out of Fort Knox and to take it down to 8,000 tonnes. Now, when they got to 8,000 tonnes um, in backing the dollar to enable them to print money to, to have guns and butter and have wars, which people aren't prepared to pay for, um, they then had to pull out of the, the close the gold window in 1971. And then from then, from then, we've had two major bubbles. We've had a bubble in banking and finance paid for with money out of thin air. And we've had a major bubble in government, again, paid for with, uh, with money out of thin air. So this is how you can have deficits. Uh, like you said, we haven't had deficits forever. We've had deficits, permanent deficits since the 1970s. Um, and the reason for this is because they can now just print the money that they need. So in the UK, I can't even remember the last time we didn't have a deficit. We might have been one year in the 1990s or something. But it's been about 150 to £200 billion a year uh, for the last sort of 10 years. It kind of really got going by Gordon Brown to pay for the Labour government to get re-elected. Um, so it's, it's like a man who's earning £50,000 a year. He spends £70,000 a year on his lifestyle and he borrows £20,000 every year. Um, it's incredible. It's going to collapse it's only a question of how and when. This cannot be sustained. We either have a liquidationary depression or we have hyperinflation. Either way, for the people of being being robbed by this government money printing, it's a disaster for us and we must protect ourselves from this in various ways. Now, if and again, if anyone is listening, I think there's two or three things they need to do. They need to diversify as much as they can into real assets. Now, this is well-valued property, you know, Probably that's not overvalued. It's it's gold, it's silver, it's it's real assets. It might even be shares in in good solid kind of blue chip firms. Um, whatever it is, it's got to be real. It mustn't be bonds. It mustn't be money. It must be stuff that's real that can't be taken off you. So if you can get your gold and your silver stored abroad somewhere where the British government can't take it from you, or wherever you are, away from the good country that you're in, so your government cannot take your stuff from you but make sure that it's real stuff that can't be printed if it can be printed like money and like government bonds it's going to collapse in value either through a liquidationary depression or through hyperinflation either way protect yourself perhaps we should just um elucidate slightly on those two scenarios that you've mentioned there just so that if anybody's new to this that they'll understand what to you know the signs to look for um, out there in the real economy well, hyperinflation is a is a psychological phenomenon. We we could actually have hyperinflation tomorrow in the United States. Uh, the the world is awash with dollars. They've uh, the American government has, has printed trillions and trillions of dollars uh, electronically. I mean, they actually have to print the paper, like you said. It's only three percent of the money is printed. It's all electronic money. 
Now, if that money, um, if people psychologically stop believing in the United States and stop seeing it as a bastion of, of financial security, then all those dollars will flood back to the United States to buy stuff in the United States, land, real estate, um, all sorts of property. There will then be hyperinflation in the United States. Now, that's not going to be a switch. It's not going to be when bonds hit this percentage rate or whatever. It will be a psychological collapse of faith in the good faith of the United States government to repay its obligations. So as long as people believe in the US government, as long as people believe that when they buy a US government bond, they'll be able to sell it later for um, slightly, you know, uh, for, for a, a sum that's appreciable to what they paid for it, then this will keep going. But there will, like I said earlier, the, in the dome of, of the economic system, something will crack. And when it cracks, the whole thing will come tumbling down and there'll be hyperinflation. Now, the, the way they might get out of that is to pay off their obligations by just printing money. And so then we'll have trillions and trillions and trillions of dollar units um, chasing a fixed number of uh, limited physical assets. So then we'll have hyperinflation. Or if they don't, what will then happen is all the banks who are owed money, um, they will collapse because they won't get that money. There'll be massive counterparty uh, problems. The banks won't get that money. And we saw with Lehman's. When Lehman's Brothers collapsed... They had something like about a 1% of real assets behind 100% of their kind of obligations. Uh, and that when those obligations collapsed, the monetary supply, the money supply collapsed as well. Because lots of when, when a bank collapses with a fractional reserve bank, um, the, the money supply contracts massively as well. And, all of a, and then that sets off a domino effect. And then other banks don't get their money. And then that bank collapses. And then it kind of really rapidly starts getting going and then it really ratchets and really keeps going and, and then the whole thing comes down it's a bit like a kind of black hole forming uh, you get one little gravitational collapse like Lehman Brothers uh, and then the central banks decided to, to not let that happen again and bail everybody else out but if they'd let everyone else go go down that that day the whole thing would have come down to a tiny call now I want I wanted that to happen because then we'd have had the pieces on the floor there wouldn't have been many pieces left, but the pieces would have been on the floor, and then we'd have rebuilt. We'd still have the physical assets. We'd still have real people, real physical assets in the world. We'd have a lot of contractual disputes, which the courts would clear through. Uh, there'd be bankruptcies, and we'd be liquidating debts, and then we'd start again. The whole thing could have been over in a year to 18 months, maybe less, maybe more. I don't know, because we didn't let it happen. Um, but they didn't let it happen. They did what they did in the 1930s. Um, in 1921, there was exactly the same financial situation as happened in 1929. But the Federal Reserve didn't have the confidence, because it had only existed for eight years, it didn't have the confidence to do anything about it. So it just let the collapse happen. And the Americans were out of that crisis within one year. So they, they went into what looked like 1929 crisis. Federal Reserve didn't do anything. Government didn't do anything. And they were out of it within with 18 months after everything had been cleared away. 1929, same thing happened. Another eight years had gone past. The Federal Reserve had much more confidence and there was an interventionist president in place, kind of National Socialist uh, Roosevelt. And he then basically kept that depression going uh, by government interventions. And the Americans didn't really recover until post-Second World War, probably about 1954, the prices eventually came back. Uh, the, the Wall Street kind of figures came back to what they'd been in 1929. So it was the intervention of the Federal Reserve and the US government in 1929 which created the depression. And that's what we're in now. We've been in a depression now um, possibly since 2001, possibly since 2008, but we're definitely in a depression. We're doing what the Japanese did. 
Uh, we, they're, they're in their third decade of zombie banks now, and eventually the Japanese will, will collapse. I think there's, I don't know what the GDP to, to debt figures are, something like a huge number. That's unsustainable. The Japanese might be actually where the first crack shows, because with that tsunami last year, and with now much bigger oil imports, um, they have a real problem. Uh, they're th- uh, their three decades of uh, printing yens to, to bail themselves out continuously might finally be coming to an end. So maybe Japan will be the first to go. Well, you mentioned you know the, <clears throat> how long the, the economy uh, might have been in depression. Uh, not a word that you'll hear used in the mainstream media very often, but don't you love it when they get on... Uh, the financial programs and even the general news bulletins and with comments that I heard recently like, you know, is it possible that uh, Britain could be headed back into recession? You know, the recession (laughs) that ended in 2009. And it's like, what world are you living in? Yeah, to to present something like oh, that. I'm I'm tired of the number of times I've heard these green roots, uh, the, sorry, green shoot stories. I mean, we've been having them since 2007, haven't we? Oh, the green shoots are around the corner. Government minister after government minister, whose names and faces escape me because they're so inconsequential. Oh, the green shoots are coming. This is here's a big question for all these governments. How do they think we're going to get out of this? They're increasing taxes. They're increasing regulations. They're increasing borrowing. How do we get out of a crisis caused by increased taxes, increased borrowing and increased money printing by doing more of the same? Now, the Keynesians, of course, believe they have the answer, which is another huge war, if you listen to anything such as Paul Krugman says. Um, but, you know, do, do you really want to go through, have to go through a war in which you know, massive amounts of property is destroyed, massive amounts of people are destroyed uh, in order to solve a Keynesian um, uh, textbook question? It won't even work anyway. Um, so it, it, you cannot solve what, what we had by doing more of the same, but no one seems to want to address this. And again, all they want to do is stand on stools and shout at each other over one and a half billion pounds of differences in spending. In terms of people kind of protecting themselves, which is really where we're ending up in this discussion, um, most people out there, even if they're not doing well at all, they may have some small amount of money in, in a bank account. Uh, yeah. Others, different levels of savings. I mean, even if you've got a lot saved, if it's in a regular high street bank, um, that's basically losing money as things stand. And I think people are beginning to grasp this because they're getting paid very low interest rates. I mean, interest rates have been very low for a long time. It seems that stated intention is for them to stay there. Uh, but even if you accepted the government's inflation figures as real, which they're not, they're manipulated downwards, that there's a, you know, that doesn't correlate you know, you're earning one point something percent on your money. Uh, the value of that's going down by two percent every year in terms of what you can buy with it. So having money in a regular savings account and even in some, you know, other uh, better accounts, quote unquote, like ISIS and what have you, it's a losing proposition. So people should shouldn't think, well, I, I can't really diversify into other asset classes. I don't know anything about them. Um, things will pick up eventually or I'm saving for the long term. You know, in 25 years time, I'll still have you know, much bigger pot of money than I have now. It's they really should look at their their situation, whether they've got a, a lot of money or very little. Well, if you give an example, I mean, what I got, say I have a hundred pounds, and there's a British government bond which costs a hundred pounds, paying two percent. Uh, I could buy that government bond and get two percent and feel oh, great. I'm making two percent. Problem with that, of course, is that the inflation the inflation figures are. I don't believe them at all. But let's say 
even the published ones are three and a half percent. So you're already losing one and a half percent. But the real figures, I mean, going on my Tesco shopping bill and going on my petrol prices and going on the money I actually spend, I think it's more like about 10 percent. And I think if you follow the M4 Bank of England figure, that's probably a better figure, which is around 10 percent at the moment. So each year they increase the money supply by 10 percent. So I buy this British government bond, I get 2%. Inflation's really 10%, so I'm already down 8%. Now, here's here's the best part, of course. If I'm a higher-rate taxpayer, I'll pay 40% tax on that 2%. So I'll lose... You know, I'll lose uh, 0.8 of a pence or 80 pence on on that two pounds I'm being paid. So I'll only get one pound, whatever it is, uh, yeah, one pound twenty from my hundred pound investment. So I'll really, after tax, get 1.2 percent. Inflation's really 10 percent. So I'm losing 8.8 percent, or approximately, if you, if you mess around with the maths, I'm losing about nine percent uh, of my investment. So government bonds. Complete waste of time. And what we're finding now at the moment, of course, with financial repression is most people save through pensions uh, to get the tax benefits of that. And governments are insisting for safety reasons, obviously, that uh, pension companies put a lot of their money into government bonds. And that makes the, the pension companies look good. It make, means they're following the law. They get a little bit of nominal return. And most of the economists in pension companies are Keynesians and monetarists anyway, so they believe in all of this. And it shows a kind of nominal return of this a kind of 1.2% on the investment, which is better than nothing, I suppose, um, in terms of nominal figures. So people need to avoid anything like this, government bonds or keeping their money in cash and money markets. They need to get into real assets. Now, it doesn't it doesn't really matter what they are as long as they can't be printed, uh, as long as they're well-priced. And if they're value-priced, that's even better. So, again, I wouldn't buy um, real estate in Spain, for instance. But, you know, if you know your local area, you, you might get something there or you might, you might invest in Singapore or whatever. But if you want to keep it really simple, just buy physical gold and buy physical silver. They're both real money. Gold, um, it could do really well when they restructure the financial system and create Bretton Woods 3 and base money again on gold, which I think will happen in some form or other. It will get a huge shot in the arm there. Silver could get a huge shot in the arm because it's very, very volatile. Um, it's like riding in a, in a jet plane rather than uh, riding in a, on a train. But uh, gold is the train. Um, silver is the kind of jet plane. It could crash, I don't know, but it could reach the skies. And with the growth of solar energy, huge demand for silver there, um, silver could could really rocket in price. So maybe go for a mixture of both. Maybe um, if, if you know what you're doing, if you want to get involved in shares, try to make sure it's companies which you think will survive through a depression or which will produce gold and silver in the future to, to, to create real money out of the ground. So if you want to be safe, hard assets, physical hard assets stored outside the country in which you live and inaccessible to the government whose passport you hold. And... Um, Forget about making money from investments. Um, I think safety is the key here. Just holding on to what you have. At the end of all of this, when this clears in 5, 10, 20 years' time, the ones who will win will be the ones who are still holding on to what they have. There will be a few people, of course, who've speculated brilliantly. They've bought some one hundred percent of their money into one little gold miner, which junior gold miner, which has done spectacularly well. Well, good luck to you. Very risky business. But for everyone else... Safety safety is key. That means physical gold. That means physical silver. It means hard assets like property. 
and keeping them out of the hands of your government because they will take them if they can. Now, in terms of talking to people um, trying to make a case for uh, gold and silver, uh, there's quite a, a sudden transformation that can take place. And that happens when you, because you must, I believe, when I talk to people of this, you must convince yourself that it's right for you. I talk to people, dozens of them, anybody that will listen about what I've done with regards to gold and silver, but I say to them, don't listen to me. You need to be convinced because I can't take responsibility if you go and buy gold and silver because I said so and then you lose money. You know, it goes down in value, which has happened, could well happen again in the future. It happens on a daily basis up and down all over the place. And two simple things. People listening to this now, completely new to it, just get onto Amazon. The first two books I read on the subject were Precious Metals Investing for Dummies is part of that series, the Four Dummies series. And the other one was actually uh, Rich Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad's Guide uh, to Investing in Gold and Silver. Two simple, readable books that will give you all the fundamentals. And if you read those and are not shocked into action, then you're already dead. Yeah, people have to make their own minds up. People cannot let people like us um, advise them. If I'm not advising, you know, I'm not here as an advisor, professional advisor. I'm, I'm doing what I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I... I'm asking others to do uh, for their own safety. If you're asking me for advice, that's that's what I'd say. I'd say gold and silver. That's what I'm doing myself. So I, I can only advise people to do what I'm doing myself. Uh, the way I look at it, I, I think you've got to get into the, the kind of Austrian school books. So you must read What Was the Government Into Our Money by Murray Rothbard, then The Mystery Banking, all free, all downloadable from the internet. Um, figure it out for yourself. Figure out what's going on. Stop watching the BBC. That's another key thing. If you're in the UK, stop watching the BBC. Um, it's government-owned. It's government-owned for a reason. Um, it's government-owned because they push government messages. Now they argue about the Labour Party, the Conservative Party. It's just the British state. The British government has been in control of this country for nearly a 1,000 years, and the BBC is an, is an owned arm of the British government. So they will always push the British government, and whatever message the British government wants to push, they will push for them. So you must think for yourself. You must read for yourself. You must find out for yourself. You must go to people you trust. In the end, we're going to have to just trust somebody. Um, in the end, who knows what could happen. Um, the, the British government could even do something such as, yes, you've got this gold held in Singapore. Um, we can't make you give it back to us. But if you try to re-import it, it's going to be a 95% tax on it. Oh, and if you leave the country as well, you have to leave behind 95% of your assets. So they'll trap us that way. You'll still be free to go to Singapore. You'll still be free to get your gold back from Singapore. It's just that you will be 95% poorer if you do either of those two things. They can do anything like that. Who knows what they'll do? I, don't, I, I hope things don't quite go that far. But we must plan for the worst thing that could happen. And then if the worst thing happens, then you know, at least we'll have prepared for it. If you hope and you gamble that everything's going to muddle through, um, just ask yourself a lot of questions. Um, paper monies have collapsed. All paper monies have collapsed. You can read the Paper Money Collapse book by Detlef Schlichter. Um, he will tell you about the histories of paper money collapses, starting in China, where they first invented paper money, uh, Hungary, even Germany, even somewhere as conservative as Germany. Twice in the last hundred years, they've had a paper money collapse. So it's happened everywhere. Now, what we find strange at the moment is that the money that's going to collapse will ultimately be the dollar. And we've never had a world paper money before. Um, it will be the last to go, I think. I think the yen will go first and then possibly the British pound and then the euro. 
and then eventually the US dollar. That could all happen over six months or six years or ten years. It just depends on the psychology of people following all of this, whether they choose to believe the messages or they choose to break out of the matrix and they choose to uh, think for themselves. So we can't put any figures or any time frame on this. We can just examine what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And to protect yourself, try to get some assets that are hard, that are physical, and make sure that they're out of the hands as much as possible of the government whose kind of slave card passport you currently happen to have. You could even go to Jeff, um, Jeff Berwick's site, uh, TDV Passports, and uh, try to find yourself an alternative passport if you want to do that kind of thing. So um, I'll let you find out about that uh, by searching for Jeff Berwick and TDV Passports. Um, to, again, to try to get yourself out from under the clutches of whichever government you happen to be living under. Andy, well, you've made the point there uh, very well that most of this is based, if not all of it, is based on belief. What we think is going to happen, what, why we think things are happening, what the past has been, what what's happening right now, what's going to happen. So therefore, it could all unwind virtually overnight, or it could be a decade from now, as you say. Who knows? It could happen. Uh, you know, it could be like sort of domino effect, um, or it could be a bit more piecemeal than that. But underlying all this is... Uh, this notion, this perpetual growth model that national and the world economy is built on. And that's kind of what, I mean, just in conclusion, that's kind of what we're coming to the end of now. And we hear talking heads in the mainstream media talking about must get back to growth. The politicians and economists are all doing it. And only when we grow the economy can we get out of this recession that we're in, whatever they would choose to call it that necessarily. But the perpetual growth model just can't work. Nothing can grow forever. And we're really seeing the unwinding of that now. And I think that the other side of it, however painful it is to get there, I think there's something, if we can really learn the lessons from what's happened the last hundred years or so, I think there's something much better out there ahead of us. Well, there's lots of points you kind of bring up there, which are all very interesting. I think we can have uh, perpetual growth in humanity, uh, but I don't think it can be this kind of government planned growth. Uh, the strange thing, of course, is all the governments are saying, we need growth, we need growth. Where's it going to come from if you keep increasing taxes and you keep increasing regulations and you keep decreasing freedoms and you keep trying to smash entrepreneurs and punish people for being wealthy, as they're doing in France at the moment? Or oh, we want growth and we're going to tax people at 75% or 100%. It's just, un- it's just ridiculous. But we can have growth. It just though, must be organic growth. And organic growth is going to go much slower than kind of government plan growth. Um, organic growth is the inc- the slow kind of increasing technology, um, trying to avoid wars wherever possible. So if we look at somewhere like Switzerland, they've managed to avoid wars now for hundreds of years. They've had a slow increasing technology, so they've had a slowly growing wealth, whereas other people have borrowed huge amounts, invested it badly into government enterprises, had some nominal growth, and then once those malinvestments government-directed malinvestments have revealed themselves, then they've had collapses. And then to get out of that situation, they've had wars which have made things even more bad. They've destroyed the assets, the productive assets. So you look at Switzerland and then you look at somebody ne- somewhere next to it, such as France, and you compare, you know, you take a French-speaking part of Switzerland, you take a French-speaking part of France right next to it, very, very similar culturally, same kind of religions, and then you look at the wealth of the two uh, different places. Uh, one side has, until unfortunately recently, has had sound money, peace, um, and organic growth through technology and um, efficiencies. And the other side has had paper money, uh, wars, destructionism, and socialism. Um, I'd much rather be in the French-speaking part of Switzerland 
than the French-speaking part of France over the next 10 to 15 years. Perhaps you'd like to tell listeners about uh, your work with Gold Mummy and indeed anywhere else uh, that they can find your stuff and just anything in general that you'd like to share. Well, um, I, the last few months I've been doing some, I was asked to do some interviews for, for Gold Money, which is a fantastic opportunity, really welcome the opportunity. And it's been great fun because I've, I've spoken to um, Ron Paul, which is great, uh, Peter Schiff, I'm speaking soon to Torsten Polite, I'll be, I'll be speaking to as many Austrian scholars as I can get my, uh, get my hands on. I have to keep it to gold or money or both, no matter how tangential, that, that, that can be fun, trying to... Trying to, I really want to talk about something else, and I, I have to talk about gold or money or both. So that's been a challenge to, to make things interesting but stick on the kind of main subject. That's been a lot of fun. The other thing I've been uh, trying to do is I'm, I'm starting to write novels at the moment under a pen name of uh, Jack England. So if anybody uh, anybody's interested in reading some fantastic historical novels based on the <laughs> conflict of tyranny and... Um, of the Persian Empire trying to take over ancient Greece and the, the Greek people trying to keep themselves free. I've written my first one. It's called Sword of Marathon, and you can find that on Amazon. Just search for Sword of Marathon, or you can find it on Barnes & Noble's Nook site, or you can find it on Smashwords, or you, you can even find it on iTunes now. All, all the electronic ones are 99 units, so they're 99 euro cents or 99 American cents or 99 British pence. Uh, there is a paper version for anyone who wants it, um, which I've priced as low as I possibly can. So there's some fun books. I've written the first one, Sword of Marathon. I'm currently writing the second one, which will be about Thermopylae and Salamis. And then the third one will be about the Battle of uh, Plataei. And then the fourth one, who, who knows what that will be, but uh, we'll do the trilogy. So that's some good Christmas fun for anybody who wants to read that kind of thing. All based on the ideas of liberty and freedom and so on and hoppianism. And, um, it's been good fun actually doing the first one because a democracy was invented just as I start my novel. So I've been able to have some fun and games with democracy. So that's my two main things at the moment. I, um, I'm doing these interviews for Gold Money, which is great fun and a great privilege. And I'm also writing these novels under this pen name of uh, Jack England. Excellent. Well, Andy Duncan, thank you very much for joining us again on LegalisedFreedom.com. My pleasure. And uh, hopefully everything goes well for you in the future as well, Greg. Well, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, legalisefreedom.com. That's legalise-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programmes on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalisefreedom.com. <laughs>